I think being capital efficient is super important. Now, companies can be capital efficient by choice. They can also be capital efficient by force if there's no capital that's available for them to raise. The goal behind Destiny and the Genesis was really taking it from the top. What is the dream product? And for me, it kind of looked like SPY or QQQ, but for private tech. And that's what we set out to achieve. This definitely wasn't possible five or 10 years ago. And it's not even a question of technology. It's just the market liquidity wasn't there. It was far too fragmented. There was not enough infrastructure. Hello, everyone, and welcome to FinTech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Sohail Prasad, CEO and co-founder of Destiny and co-founder of Forge. Destiny is creating a family of exchange-traded products that will enable anyone with a brokerage account to invest in publicly traded portfolios of private tech companies. Their first and flagship product is the Destiny Tech 100. It will be listed on the New York Stock Exchange in March of 2024, and it will consist of a portfolio of some of the top VC-backed private companies, including SpaceX, Stripe, OpenAI, Chime, Klarna, Brex, and more. In this episode, we discuss the importance of democratizing private company investing, building the Destiny Tech 100, and defining its rules and company inclusion criteria, lessons from building Forge and going public on a New York Stock Exchange, and a lot more. All right, so Il, welcome to Fintech Leaders. I'm delighted you're joining us. Let's start just by hearing a bit about yourself. Take us all the way through founding Destiny. Sure. So when I was 20 out in San Francisco, despite not really having any experience in the world of finance, it was kind of puzzling to me to see my friends, people around me, kind of how they were doing deals in the private market. And there were tons of deals happening. People were buying shares in Twitter back in the day and selling shares in Facebook. But it was, for the most part, super manual, very fragmented base of brokers. And that kind of led to the question, why is there not one place people go to do this? Why can we not standardize how these transactions are done You know, and build that trust and that liquidity in the market? And so we started a company that later went on to be called Forge back in 2014. And just simple idea of what would it take to build a stock market for private companies? We built it up over the last decade. And two years ago, Forge went public. So that was a a kind of full circle journey and is now the largest marketplace for late stage private tech stock. Along the way, while building that market infrastructure, one of the things that you know, I realized is it's Forge still touches very few people in the world. 
you know, a handful of investors, a handful of employees, a handful of VCs. And I was back home one day visiting my family and talked to my dad. And, you know, he asked me, what should I invest in? And personally, I've been investing, angel investing in early stage companies, late stage secondaries, but none of those were accessible to him. So it kind of puzzled me. And I thought back to everything we're doing at Forge and how we could actually let people across the world participate in all of the growth and success that we are all seeing around us in tech. And so over the years, people have always talked about this in different ways. They've talked about crowdfunding as a means of opening up access. They've talked about crypto as a means of trying to open up access. And I think all of it comes down to how do you let everyone participate in the success Obviously, there are many challenges. You have adverse selection. You have, you know, challenges in getting access to the best. You just happen to see a few deals. And so the goal behind Destiny and the Genesis was really taking it from the top. What is the dream product? And for me, it kind of looked like SPY or QQQ, but for private tech. And that's what we set out to achieve. How do you create a product that is liquid? and traded on an exchange where somebody doesn't need a new account, they can go to their brokerage and hit buy. How do you have that invest in the top private companies and make sure that you don't suffer from adverse selection? How do you have that be transparent? How can you lower the fees from the traditional model? And so solving for that became the genesis for Destiny, which we started four years ago. And it's been quite a journey. We raised almost $100 million two years ago to go and actually get this product live, started building up the portfolio and file our registration statement with the SEC in 2022. Recently, we've received effectiveness and the Destiny Tech 100 will be listed publicly and traded on the NYSE sometime later in March. So let's zoom in on, on your new index, Tech 100. How do you decide who goes in Let's start with that. We've experimented in the past while at Forge and otherwise at different models. And you'd imagine that the most ideal model looks very passive, completely rules-based, based on a set of factors like market cap, you know, company growth, et cetera. But the challenge that happens with creating a so-called index is in the private markets, there's not enough liquidity to go and actually create a fund to properly track that index. So what ends up happening is you become a forced buyer as companies' prices are increasing. And then if companies' prices are decreasing and their allocation and weighting is lower, you become a forced seller. So there ends up being a ton of inefficiency in trying to do that. And at the same time, if you had a purely active fund, then it's based on kind of the whims of you know the management team. And so what we tried to do is get the best of both. We looked at how this is being done in other asset classes. For example, the S&P 500 has a set of inclusion eligibility criteria. And even once you meet that eligibility criteria, they have a committee that then further decides when to include you in the S&P 500. So notably, you know, Tesla, as an example, became eligible to be in the S&P 500, but the committee didn't include it until six months later. So what we've done is we've set out a set of five inclusion and eligibility criteria that's meant to kind of vet out things that don't look like traditional high growth venture back startups, things that don't look like they should be included. 
And that's the first pass filter. If a company is excluded there, it can still be manually included by the investment committee, but that at least serves as the first pass. And then from there, we also look at a set of metrics around the company. So we have a dozen metrics around whether it's a company's growth rate or addressable market size, asset light versus asset heavy business models. We're keeping into account executive turnover as a data point to consider. And then also importantly is execution in the secondary markets. So what we do is we actually go and participate. We're agnostic. So we participate in companies' primary rounds. We participate series C, D, E, F, G, and so on. We do secondary purchases from founders, management teams, employees, early investors, and we purchase on the open market through places like Forge because our job is to provide best execution for the fund and the end investors. And so it's not as simple as going and saying, hey, we're going to buy this company. Where is it currently offered? And just do that. You have to see where has it been trading? What are the various structures used to trade it? And actually see how you can effectively get a better price that might be available on the market. So I was going to ask, how do you solve for access, right? But it sounds like over the last, you started four years ago or the last maybe four years ago, you have been actively participating and buying equity in about a hundred companies, right? That are now going under the Destiny Tech 100. Is that the case? Yeah. In bringing this to life, it needs quite a few things to come into place. So obviously the portfolio starts from zero. And we had an interesting decision to make, which is as we go through the listing process, do we wait until we have all 100 companies in the portfolio? And because this is a portfolio that's going to be built over time, right now we have in the low 20s number of companies in the portfolio. And so we started building that up. So right now in this kind of deployment phase, that waiting is going to continue changing as we invest more dollars in different companies and work our way from 23, 24 companies up to 100. But we did go. And at the same time, when you're thinking about the end investor, they do want to see, okay, this is a great idea, but are you able to get into the top uh, opportunities? Can you have SpaceX in there and OpenAI and Stripe and Brex and Epic Games and so on and so forth? And so we've been able to actually go demonstrate great execution, bringing these names into the portfolio. And now we are going to be letting everyone to kind of participate in the journey from here. I have so many questions. What happens when a company goes public out of your index? Do they graduate out? Yeah, it's a great question. And there are a couple constituencies we have to balance. You know, from the company's perspective, you want a long-term aligned investor. You don't want someone that's just going to, you know, sell all their shares on day one of the lockup expiry. On the flip side, from our investor perspective, that what makes Destiny Tech 100 special is its exposure to private companies. And so having a bunch of public companies in there, investors have other means. Once they're public, investors have other means of getting that exposure. And so what we've done is basically set out transparently a policy to everybody that once a company lists publicly, we're going to hold on to the shares and then systematically divest between years two and three of the company's public existence. So what that means is we're not going to go and immediately add to their free float and we can commit to them that will be aligned for the long term. So it's a rules-based system. And, and by the way, I know some of the best venture capital investors do that. I don't want to name any names, but I've heard of 
that kind of system where it's rules-based. Is it a case that if a company is within the Destiny Tech 100, then they'll be subjected to additional information requirements in the public markets that otherwise would not exist for them? Or does it remain the same? No. So from the company's perspective, it remains the same. They don't have new obligations for disclosures to the extent we receive information from companies. We're not passing that on to the public. But importantly, there are two pieces. One is we do, to be transparent, publish a net asset value of the fund, which we'll be publishing on a quarterly basis, and as well as the holdings and relative weight of each company. And then two, over time, as we have millions and tens of millions of individual investors, professional investors that own shares in the Destiny Tech 100 and are kind of now participants in this economy, that is an incredibly valuable audience. So what we want to do for founders and CEOs and boards is give them the opportunity to start sharing more information about their company while still private. And, and so you've seen this over the years, as companies get closer and closer to going public, they start shaping up their financials and uh, sometimes voluntarily disclosing quarterly how they're doing. You've seen that with Uber, you've seen that with Spotify and others. And so this is an opportunity, whether it's financial disclosures, vision, anything else, we can be a channel where a company can now have tens of millions in the future people that are invested in their success and start educating that audience about their story, about their journey, about how they think about their company's growth. And, and so that's an incredible opportunity from both sides. A lot of venture capital investors, private markets investors were criticized, barely so in some cases, in 2022 and 2023 for not really marking down their companies when maybe they should have. And I know this is case by case. Sounds like your approach, if you have to have an NAV or a publicly listed vehicle, you are going to be taking a look at that on a yearly basis. Correct. We have a firm we work with to help prepare marks and do an analysis of each position and come to a quarterly net asset value. And that's super important because for us, we want to take in not just data, maybe about a company's primary round or other growth, but also where has it been trading in the secondary market? Where have trades executed? Where is supply and demand? Because we want our NAV to have reflect the current kind of fair price of the aggregate portfolio and each position. So let's talk a little bit about the technology. Would this have been possible five, 10 years ago? What kind of technology are you using to, as you call it, to get to the promised land. This definitely wasn't possible five or 10 years ago. And it's not even a question of technology. It's just the market liquidity wasn't there. It was far too fragmented. There was not enough infrastructure. And so in terms of, that's one of the things we built Forge and that created more market infrastructure, created more standardization in the markets. And generally, there's also been a lot more attention and awareness. So secondary market participants aren't just employees and founders. It's also all types of VC firms, whether it's seed stage funds or some of the largest, most well-known. And so there's a lot more activity. There's a lot more awareness. And we're able to build on that to be able to create the Destiny Tech 100. What kind of team did you have to build to get to this point? Yeah, fortunately, we're able to build a team of some of the best people that we've ever worked with in the past. 
And so definitely our COO, Ethan Silver, he actually was the primary outside counsel for Forge when we started and was also primary outside counsel for Robinhood. And so when starting Destiny, it was very clear that the relationship we'd built, he'd be a perfect person to kind of help build this vision into reality, given how much nuance is required on the legal, regulatory, compliance side. But the rest of the team as well, we have some of the best people that we've been able to work with in the past that have kind of joined us to make this vision a reality. So you're starting with the Destiny Tech 100. You're starting with uh, low 20s as, as your initial set of companies. You're obviously kind of try to grow that, I assume, to 100. But what's next? What's your vision for the company? Is it to just have that index and be the company powering that? Or, you know, is there a bigger, grander vision? Yeah, I think the Destiny Tech 100 is super important because that almost serves as a flagship, you know, in terms of just getting exposure, beta exposure to late stage tech and venture, which has obviously had a very challenging time these past couple of years, but nonetheless is one of the most exciting places. One of the interesting things to think about is 20 years ago, technology meant internet. And now technology is everything. It is financial services. It is aerospace. It is enterprise software. It is AI. It, it's across all domains, not just one. And so these companies represent a cross-section of the future of the world, the future of every industry. And so to that end, Destiny Tech 100 and growing that and building that up is very important to us. In the longer term, over time, I believe we can extend the model to actually go and build upon this by providing access into and opportunities to create exchange-listed portfolios of various sectors and stages. So you could imagine someone can express their views in the private market through a publicly listed vehicle, whether that's a fund that's focused on AI or LATAM or any other sector geography stage. I'm interested more in kind of what you learned at Forge, what you've learned building Destiny. Every leader has their strengths and weaknesses. Like, what would you say is your strength? Are you a product guy? Are you a sales guy? Like, tell us a bit more lessons on company building. One of the most invigorating parts of building companies for me has been learning everything. I don't think you have the luxury of just being a product guy or a tech guy or a legal guy or a business guy. And so to that end, that has been the most gratifying, getting into the weeds of understanding the legal and regulatory requirements, but also figuring out how to scale our operations effectively, the product and technology, the design, the branding, the marketing communication. So that's actually, for me, the most fun part about building companies it's the most fun part about investing, learning about different industries, learning about different companies, different approaches to building. And so that opportunity has taught me lots along the way and uh, a, a lot more to go as well. When did you realize you wanted to kind of start building, become a founder? Was it a pretty early in, in your days? Was it taking you back to your childhood or, or was it more kind of an evolving process? Yeah, for me, I started messing around on the computer, not playing games, but just going into settings and started programming when I was five years old. 
And then I would sketch out on paper ideas for a robotics company and, you know, just different ideas. And so I, I started my first companies back in the dot-com era when I was 10, 12 years old doing basic things. But one of the really interesting learnings that I got to front load is just because you build it, even if you build something great, doesn't mean they will come. And I think if you learn that at a younger age, it sets you up to know that you can't just build it. You have to be able to do all pieces of actually bringing this to market successfully, whatever you're doing. And so for me, fortunately, I realized at a very young age, this is what I'd wanted to do in terms of building companies. And there's something really gratifying about having an idea of what could exist in the world or should exist in the world, and then just continuing to drive and persevere forward until you can see that become reality. You mentioned, you know, if you build it doesn't mean they will come. I'm sure you've had some mistakes and, and like tough lessons, right? Maybe share some of those, right? Where were where some things that you learned that maybe you could help other founders avoid as mistakes? Yeah, I think one of the interesting phenomena to watch, especially over the last decade, but even recently, has been how companies operate and how capital efficient they are. You know, you saw over the entire 2010s, especially kind of peaking in 2021, larger and larger seed rounds, larger and larger every round. And I think what ends up happening is money that you raise ends up getting spent. And so instead of taking half a person's time to experiment with a new idea, you put three people on it. Instead of doing no marketing, you put a budget behind it. And so in that phase, I think being capital efficient is super important. Now, companies can be capital efficient by choice. They can also be capital efficient by force if there's no capital that's available for them to raise. But either way, I think that is really powerful. And what's been great to see over the last two years is this resurging focus on building real businesses. People are focused on not just growth at all costs, but how do we actually build the fundamentals? I think what ends up happening and what I've seen happen when capital is more abundantly free-flowing is you have companies that don't truly have product market fit. They may have the early stages of it. It might look like it and they have, you know, they raise more money. They can kind of paper over some of the holes with money, but eventually you do have that reckoning. And so I think by forcing yourself to be a little more capital efficient, by forcing yourself to truly find that product market fit before you go and pour too much fuel on that fire, that just makes for better fundamentals of building a business. On that note, sounds like something that your companies and the Destiny Tech 100 have is capital efficiency. I'm sure you're going to say yes. But what are other commonalities that these companies have, the ones that you have selected? From our perspective, the goal, again, is to make sure that we can provide in the portfolio access to all of you know what we could consider the top companies. And so what they have in common often is kind of having reached a certain scale in terms of valuation, in terms of growth. But what that means can look very different. You know, part of our portfolio is in so-called larger cap companies that might be 10 billion plus in valuation. 
And then there's also a whole set of portfolio companies that might be 750 million to 10 billion in valuation. And so those, while they might have reached a certain scale, they still have things to prove out. They're still proving out the core unit economics. They're still proving out maybe new areas of growth and expansion. And so both present different risks, different growth opportunities. But as a whole, it's important for us to have both types of companies in the portfolio and provide that exposure to people. How early is too early to be included in the Destiny Tech 100? Yeah, we didn't want billion dollars or unicorn to be an arbitrary line. So we lowered that a bit to 750 million in valuation. So these are all the latest stage companies in the world. You know, the interesting thing at any other time in history, two decades ago, most of these companies would already have been public. And so by virtue of how the private markets have evolved, access to capital, desire to stay private for many reasons, these companies now remain private. And that means it's just a later and later stage when the rest of the world gets the opportunity to join them on their story. And then everyone knows what has gone on with the market, especially tech public markets over the last two, three years. Are you glad you're going out, you're going public at this point and not, you know, say 21 or or maybe even later? Like why do it specifically now? Is just a is it a matter of, oh, we got the approval, we gotta do it now, or is there more calculus to it? So we started Destiny before COVID and right at the beginning of COVID. And so it's been an interesting time where you had a ton of uncertainty and volatility. Then you had this huge growth and resurgence in tech specifically and the whole markets. And now the last two years have been really challenging. For us, it hasn't been seeing it as an opportunistic thing. We're creating this because I believe it needs to exist in the world for my parents, my friends, everyone in the world, myself. And our vision has been to kind of push through and make that happen. Our process in the kind of registration process with the SEC definitely took a while. This is not a product that looks like exactly like anything else that exists on the market. And so part of our timing was driven by just the amount of time it took to get through that process. But also, there's definitely a tailwind today with a lot of the story being around recovery, opportunity, and growth. And if you think about today, as people look at the entire markets, where are some of the most interesting opportunities? Well, people get excited about companies like SpaceX and OpenAI, all the way down to smaller companies. And you know, every day there's a new article about this company might list soon. Is the IPO window open? And so I think, again, this will provide a ton of opportunity for people to participate in these companies earlier. It's interesting. It, it doesn't provide liquidity for the investors of the companies or the companies themselves, but it does provide access to call it Main Street investors. It actually does in a way, because over time, what we're able to do is we can participate in companies' primary rounds. We can do secondaries with the VCs, with the employees, and we can do that quickly and efficiently. And so that actually helps bridge the kind of overall global capital markets with tech and Silicon Valley, wherever that is geographically these days. Interesting. Well, thank you. I'm going to be you know, excited to see the, the listing. I, I live very close from your stock exchange, so I might stop by. But anyway, thank you for taking the time. You know, super interesting. And, you know, we'll be chatting soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Sohail from Destiny. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.